I can't tell you how many cases where I've gone up to him knowing we've got a packed courtroom and I'll walk up to the other side before the jury comes in and I'll stick my hand out there and shake my hands and say, guys, isn't it a great honor that we get to do this? Can you believe we've got this chance to do this today? Welcome to the 100th episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Today, we'll be looking back at some of our most memorable guests, behind the scenes stories, and much, much more. If we don't pause before these moments and recognize we're getting to do something few people get to do, and we don't zealously relish this moment, then heaven help us. So enjoy it, guys. I'll see you at the other side. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at some of our most iconic guests and game-changing moments from the podcast so far. From episode one to episode 99, this episode features insights and outtakes never shared before. Build a fire so hot. So big, so enormous that people from all over the world, regardless of who you are, your religion, your race, your age, your sex, they're like, I got to go sit by that damn fire. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. The first guest in the very first episode of this podcast was John Morgan, founder and CEO of America's largest injury law firm. You know, interesting story on this one. So we're in Atlanta and John was in Hawaii at the time. So we shipped him a podcast mic only to find out that he didn't have anything to plug it into. No computer, no laptop. And as it turned out, John was running his law firm at the time from his iPad. So we overnighted him a laptop to make this podcast happen. And during our conversation, John shared his thoughts on why you can't teach hungry and the differences between lions and sloths. I believe that it goes back to life is luck. I believe I'm the way I was because I was born this way. Warren Buffett was born that way. He was a paper boy. I'll bet you, you were very entrepreneurial as a kid. I believe you had something going. Now, in my generation, we were all paper boys. The people who were paper boys were the guys, because I'll meet people, and I go, hey, were you a paper boy? They go, yeah, why? I just wondering. Because I was born that way. I was born. I didn't, and by the way, being a paper boy is hard. It's seven days a week. It's rain. It's snow. It was in Kentucky. And you have to get up and you got to collect money. And sometimes they don't pay you money. When they didn't pay me money, I would go back and egg their houses later that night when they wouldn't, wouldn't pay me. But I was born that way. Some people are not born that way. And it doesn't matter rich or poor. Oprah was a paper girl. Christy Brinkley was a paper girl. Jack Welch was a paper boy. He was born that way. Warren Buffett calls it winning the ovarian lottery. And this goes back to life is luck. You know, I'm lucky that I was born to be a paper boy, that I always wanted to have money. 
and my own money. And so when I look at it all, I think it's a lot is genetic. And then I was born in America. And then life can be unlucky that turns out to be the best luck. I was in Kentucky. I love being in Kentucky. I was all my friends are when I go back to Kentucky now, my my little league tiger team all gets together and play. We my Christ the King reunions coming up and we're going to have the the thing at my son's bourbon bar in Lexington. But then I had to leave Kentucky because my dad lost his job and I left everything and I cried all the way to the airport. I got on my first ride and I went to Florida and then I realized, boy, we really are poor people because look where we're living. All of a sudden you're like, holy shit, I am poor. I am desperate. But my dad bought a house in one section of town instead of the other. Same exact house, but I was a better neighborhood. And then I got in that school district, and that school district made me better and smarter. And then I got to be around rich people, and I got to see what they were doing. And then I got to go to the University of Florida. But almost none of that luck had anything to do with me. And when you realize that, again, like I say, you quit patting yourself on the on the back and then just try to start getting a better return on luck. So it's interesting you, you mentioned luck and, and I, I certainly agree with you, but there's a, a part of this when you mentioned that, that phone call at three o'clock in the morning, a lot of this is also, you're taking very, very committed action. I mean, in a way it's almost like I would equate luck with gratitude, like realizing how much there is to be grateful for and then not wanting to squander any opportunity. Well, that's right. You see, the reason the name of that book that you got there, you can't teach hungry. You can't. You, you can't teach hungry. It's just there. It's lucky. But the thing that irritates me about people is they want to they'll say, well, you know, well, by God, you got up out of bed at three o'clock in the morning. and You went and did it. You know, by God, you did it. But I was built that way. They go, yeah, but you did it. You actually did the work. Well, yeah, but some people aren't capable of it. You say, well, yeah, yeah, they are. No, they're not. We're animals. We're no different than animals in the jungle. In the jungle today, a lion will be born. And that lion is the king of the jungle just because he or she is a lion. The same day, a sloth will be born. Okay? Same day, same jungle, same deal. That sloth is so fucked you can't even describe it because he's a sloth. All he can do is barely muster up enough energy to come down the tree, grab some berries, go to the bathroom and go back up and go to sleep. There's two different mules. There's the hardworking mule and there's the stubborn mule. They're just built that they cannot get up. I'm lucky that I was a lion instead of the sloth and I'm lucky that I got the genes to be the hardworking mule that'll get up in the snow. And by the way, once I got through with the paper route, I went and shoveled snow. You know, I wasn't done. I didn't go back. I mean, I went to the, I went to the toddle house and got some bacon and eggs, but then I was back out shoveling snow because the day wasn't over, but that's how I was built. And so that gives you such a great advantage. And it's totally out of Shaquille O'Neal cannot be Shaquille if he's not seven foot three. If he's built like me, he's like the fucking sloth. He's fucked. 
You mentioned before we started that nothing was off limits. So I got to ask this question uh, because this is an exercise I do to myself a lot. And it's if you were your own competitor, let's say like you start another law firm, you've got to compete against Morgan and Morgan. What could a competitor do to, to wipe you out? I don't think anybody could wipe me out. I don't think anybody works harder than me. I don't think anybody has the imagination that I have. Look, there was never a lo- there was nobody on the back of phone books until me. They were free. It used to be just a calendar. But before I went to law school, I sold yellow pages and I thought, you know, that'd be the place I'd rather be because that's a 50-50 chance of just being found right there. So I sort of bought up them. There was no lawyers on billboards until me. There was no lawyers on buses until me. There was no lawyers on – I don't think anybody could ever put me out of business. The only person who could put me out of business would be me by doing something stupid or crazy or just shut there just saying, hey, I'm done. People could put a gigantic dent in my business by doing some of the things I do, but they could never put me out of business. Only I could put myself out of business. I believe – that at this writing, I'm the greatest legal marketer in the history of legal marketing. We're going to do almost a billion dollars in fees this year. We spent $150 million in advertising. So to totally put me out of business would be hard. Only I can hurt myself. Yeah, that's the right answer. I think we all get to a certain point and really it's, you know, it's you against you and then being smart in, in terms of how we behave, how we manage our business, you know, how we manage ourselves personally, because you're right. I mean, at that point, it is just you. I'm my, I'm my, I am my own competition. And what I'm doing with my Google law firm is I'm bringing in all sorts of people and friends all over America. I mean, this firm in Boston, you know, I probably send them 200, 300 cases a month. I send, I send Sam Pond two or 300 cases a month. And I'm lucky because I don't ever, I've never thought of these lawyers as my competition. I've always thought of them as my friends and people who can make me better and ways for me to collaborate and do better with. I am my own competition. And when the drive is dead, when my drive is finally dead, that'll be the time that they have a chance to, to make inroads with me. But right now, I still want to increase. I still want to grow. I still want to do better. In episode five, I sat down with Chris Voss, former FBI hostage negotiator, founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group, and the best-selling author of Never Split the Difference. Chris shared his strategies for delivering bad news, who can and cannot be reasoned with, as well as his insights on the mindset of discovery. First of all, the mindset of discovery is actually, it's a hack for you. It's basically a positive frame of mind and it's curious, and you can actually take in more information. You see things faster when you're in that mindset. You pull in more data. Your pattern recognition increases. All the things that go to higher mental performance. So first of all, if you have a mindset of discovery, you're gonna be smarter, probably at least 31% smarter, which is enough of an edge that if you're interested in edges, you're gonna want it. Then the other thing too is, By definition, it's an asymmetric world. It's an imperfect world. We know we don't have all the information, yet we act like we do. You know, there's never a negotiation where you're not holding stuff, close hold, holding stuff to the vest. There's never a time when you don't have cards that you're holding back. Well, if you're not doing that, then that means they get the same dynamic. 
So we intellectually know this stuff that we don't know. Now, the crazy thing to really bend your mind around is what happens in the overlap. Because not only, since I don't know what they don't know, you know, the Donald Rumsfeld line, the unknown unknowns, but what's really sweet is when you hit the overlap and between the two of you, you discover stuff that if you're holding it back, it's important, which means you're going to get an exponential effect if you can uh, uncover it. Now, I imagine there's, there's people that, are there people that can't be negotiated or reasoned with? It's not that they can't be reasoned with. It's a little bit of what journey are they on? To begin with, how scared are they? What's really the goal? Like in, you know, in kidnapping negotiations, we had to recognize early on whether or not the goal was to actually kill the hostage. You know, the other side's on a killing journey. And so you got to, they want you to be part of that. The best you could do is get out of the journey. If the best thing you could do is to disrupt, then you simply withdraw. So that's something like asocial violence, essentially. Right. So somebody walks into a, a movie theater, starts shooting up everyone. That, that's not a person interested in having negotiation. Right, right. Or they're, trying, they're orchestrating a different outcome. Right. So in a business world, you, you don't really get that. But what you get is you get people that are so scared of the environment. And this has happened in the healthcare space a lot these days. They're so scared of making any deal, they'll come to the table and all they do is call names. All they, all they are is insulting. There's overwhelmingly fear-driven. Now, you can get people out of that, but you got to recognize that that's what's driving them. And then you got to find a way to really gently help them see that what they're doing is actually counterproductive to where they say they're trying to go. When do you know when a negotiation is a lost cause? Like, how, how do you know when to walk away? Yeah, there's, a, there's an old saying. It's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. So how do you know if you're the fool in the game? Actually, you just kind of ask, what kind of questions do you ask? You know, how have you done this in the past? How do you make decisions? What does your perfect partner look like? You know, these are, these are how and what questions. They're innocuous. Mm -hmm. You're trying to tease out the other side's vision from them. They might be using you just as a competing bid. They might simply be trying to get free consulting from you. Those two things are real common. In point of fact, it probably happens at least 20% of the time that the other side is never going to do business with you. They're either they're doing due diligence, which means you're a competing bid, or they're looking for free consulting. So your questions are, if you proceed forward, what would that look like? With deference, they're, they're going to actually start to answer the question for you. You'll find it in a way that doesn't include you. Well, if we were going to move forward and we were going to find a firm, blah, 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 they start laying it out. Now, they'll probably catch themselves about halfway through the explanation and suddenly realize they're describing an outcome that doesn't include you. And then they'll suddenly course correct, which is a great indicator that they caught themselves lying to you and they found, and they, <laughs> I've had that happen to me a bunch of times. So the idea, though, is how do you tease out early on in a very polite way? whether or not their vision of moving forward includes you. I, I imagine that, you know, I'm going to ask you in terms of delivering news. Now, no one has a problem delivering good news. It seems <laughs> like there's not a whole lot of training out there to deliver good news to people. But delivering bad news is something that we all have to do at some point in our life, probably multiple times. Right, right. And what is the best way to approach that? Two real quick critical things. The right way to do it is you say, I got bad news. 
you wait about a second, and you deliver the news. Never let somebody get blindsided by bad news. They need about a second to prep themselves, no matter how bad the news is. I got bad news. Now, if you wait longer than a second, now they really start to spin down. You know, you don't go, oh, you're not going to like this. Are you sitting down? All that nonsense. People are remarkably resilient if you give them a second to brace themselves. So that's the way you deliver bad news. Now, the other part that a lot of people do wrong is before they deliver bad news, they want to say, how are you? That is not the way to do it for a lot of reasons. Number one, if you ask someone that, in, in, and I understand it can be very well-intentioned, but if you're going to deliver bad news and you got to ask them how they are, that either means you're ignorant or you're oblivious to the current situation. If I say to you, how are you? Your first thought is, especially if we're in an environment where you should be delivering me bad news, your thought is going to be, you don't know? Like, how could we be this far into this and you have no idea how I am? I mean, it, it's a very well-intentioned thing that communicates that you might be oblivious. So if you know somebody's bad, if you know they're not doing well, then start off by saying, like, look, I know things are rough for you right now. That's a recognition that you see them, that you're not oblivious and that you, you care enough to actually notice and you're not, not afraid to articulate it. Empathy. Exactly. Uh, as opposed to being oblivious. You know, the funny thing is, I know so many stories where employees were about to get fired, they knew they were about to get fired, and the person firing them started out by saying, how are you? I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, it's well-intentioned, but it's off base. So the better approach is coming in and saying, got some bad news? Got bad news. Today's your last day at our, at our organization. That would be perfect. They're not going to be shocked. They're going to appreciate the warning. They're going to appreciate the fact that you then didn't hold them and let them twist and win for a long period of time. Give people the chance to be emotionally resilient, and they will be. Now, what about what comes after that? Because I've seen certain you know, business owners really struggle where it becomes, and even, even if I look back at myself, where because you have that level of empathy, what could be a five-minute meeting turns into an hour meeting because it's almost like you're trying to soften it for them. Right. Yeah, and that attempt to soften it is well-intentioned, but torturous. You rip the Band-Aid off. Just because you don't want it to hurt doesn't mean you should rip it off more slowly. You know, the, the most humane thing to do is to let them have it. Don't let them twist in the wind. You cannot soften a blow. There is no gentle way to cut off somebody's head Unless you're trying to cut it off nicely, then it's going to be torture. What do you do after that? Have a game plan laid out. They're going to be in a little bit of a state of shock. You're going to say, here's how, here's how we're going to proceed. There are a couple of immediate concerns that they're going to have. you got to give things a chance to sink in, and then you begin to address the immediate concerns. People want a way forward. They want to know what the truth is. They appreciate straight shooters. What's a straight shooter? A straight shooter is somebody who tells the truth in an emotionally intelligent way. They don't let people twist in the wind. They don't torture people in the guise of being nice. 
In episode 14 of this podcast, I sat down with Mark Lanier, one of the most acclaimed attorneys in the world whose landmark trial verdicts have totaled tens of billions of dollars, billions with a B. But perhaps one of the most interesting aspects of our conversation was when I asked Mark what it was like to play himself in the motion picture law drama, Puncture, starring Captain America himself, Chris Evans. You know, the movie was pretty fun. So the way that came about is I got a phone call from somebody one day who said, we want to do a movie on one of your cases, this uh, antitrust case you had. And I said, oh, yeah, everybody wants to do a movie. Have a good time. And they said, well, would you meet with our script writer? And I said, sure, why not? So I met with this nice gal and she interviewed me for a couple hours and I figure nothing ever comes of it. Everybody wants to make a movie. About a year later, I get another phone call. It says, hey, Lanier, would you be willing to let us use your name in the movie? And I said, well, you need to send me the, the the pages that have my name. I want to make sure that it doesn't have me saying, using vocabulary I don't use or, or an attitude I wouldn't have or, you know, chasing women or getting drunk or anything like that. Uh, so send me the pages. Let me look at them. Well, they sent the pages. Looked like a good reflection of me and what I do in life and, and my character and the way I talk. So I said, sure, you can use my name. Of course, not looking at the rest of the script. Big mistake, by the way. And then uh, I figure it never gets made anyway. About six months later, seven months later, I get a, my secretary comes in and she says, uh, hey, I got this guy on the phone who wants to know if you'll play yourself in the movie. And I said, what movie? I don't know. I said, we'll patch him through. And I'd totally forgotten about it. The guy says, look, uh, we've been, we've had two casting calls. We're not happy with anybody who's read for your part. We've watched you on YouTube. Would you be willing to play yourself in the movie? And I said, well, I mean, if there's time, uh, the time works, I'd, I'd be glad to try. I said, but if I'm terrible, you have to cut me and leave me on the cutting room floor because I don't want everybody looking at it thinking I'm a fool. And uh, he said, okay, deal. So it, the time worked out. I get to film these things. Well, the first scene that they've got me filming is I'm holding a press conference on the courthouse steps and Chris Evans walks out. And, and when they're putting the movie together, the first thing they do is they block the scene. So they put a piece of tape on the ground and say, okay, Mark, you walk to this piece of tape. And from here, you look over in this direction and blah, blah, blah. They set the lights, they set the cameras. And then they're off dealing with Chris Evans because he's got to be behind me in the scene walking out and they're doing his blocking. Well, while they do that, there's a of extras in the, the, the movie. And the extras are people who are going to be in the film crew. One of them's got a camera or two of them got a camera. Some of them have microphones. Some of them look like reporters with pads. And one of the reporters comes up to me and he says, with a, a Hispanic accent, he says, hey, you're Mark Lanier, aren't you? And I said, uh, I am. Good to meet you. Who are you? He says, no, no, no. I don't mean in the, the movie. I mean, in real life, you're Mark Lanier, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I, I am. It's, it's good to meet you. Tell me about you. And he says, my name is Javier Rodriguez or something. He's, he said, uh, and he was a real short little Hispanic fella. He says, my name is Javier Rodriguez. I read for your part. And so did my friend over there on the camera. And he turned around and pointed at his friend and yelled at his friend, hey, it really is Mark Lanier. Then he turns back to me and he says, I said to my friend just now, no wonder we didn't get the part. They found somebody who looks just like Mark Lanier. And uh, so, I mean, I was just a few inches away from being a short fellow with a Hispanic accent in that movie. But instead, uh, uh, I played myself. He probably could have played me better than I did, but uh, uh, he was a good guy. But um, uh, I played myself. It was a lot of fun. The movie itself was bizarre going to the premiere and the red carpet and all of that mess. So 
let's let's shift gears, you know, to the trials aspect. And with some of these, you know, the opposition you've been going up against, like a Johnson and Johnson, for example, do you get nervous, you know, walking into a courtroom when when you're facing, let's say, a Johnson and Johnson? No, I don't get nervous. I get excited. You know, it, it's really interesting. And this this again is is part of how I try a case from out of my faith. You know, I'm in there because I think this is where God wants me to be. It's that clarity of purpose you were talking about before. I think this is what I'm supposed to do. I think I'm in here. You you know, David wasn't nervous when he was picking up the stones and he was about to fight Goliath, even though Goliath was a giant that had frightened the rest of Israel. David's attitude was, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he's going to taunt the armies of God? This guy's a fool. He picks up the stones and the rest of its history. We use David and Goliath uh, uh, as an apt illustration in all aspects of culture today. So I kind of get excited. It's kind of like, I can't wait to do this. And, And it's really interesting because generally, I think a lot of the defense lawyers I've been against don't have that same level of excitement. I think they do tend to have nerves. And I can't tell you how many cases where I've gone up to them knowing we've got a packed courtroom knowing that opening statements are about to be given to not just a packed courtroom, but to a lot of media that are present, newspapers, uh, even TV cameras, et cetera. And I'll walk up to the other side before the jury comes in and I'll stick my hand out there and shake my hands and say, guys, isn't it a great honor that we get to do this? Can you believe we've got this chance to do this today? I want to wish you guys the very best in this. And, uh, uh, you know, if we don't pause before these moments and recognize we're getting to do something few people get to do, and and we don't zealously relish this moment, then heaven help us. So, so enjoy it, guys. I'll see you at the other side. And they're like, uh, 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 gee, uh, 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 yeah, I guess. And it's almost intimidating to some of them because they're so nervous about this. And I seem to just be, uh, I mean, I feel like I've got a day at the beach. This is just a cool chance to do something really fun. When you're on top, along with great success, often comes a giant target on your back. As the saying goes, everyone wants to take down the king. And many attorneys see winning in court against the great Mark Lanier as the ultimate achievement. But Mark isn't phased. In fact, he welcomes the challenge. I've been in cases before where people have said, you know, I'm going to be the one. I'm taking you out. And they seem to be trying it just for that. And I love those opportunities because that means that their focus is not where it should be. Their focus ought to be on the truth and getting to the truth in front of the jury. Instead, their focus is on taking me down. So I lost a case one time to this fellow. And there are a variety of reasons I lost the case. Um, And he actually posted on his website at a big international firm I beat Mark Lanier. And I mean, these are people who have ju- uh, lawyers that clerked for the Supreme Court of the United States, and they put that on their page or have handled all of these things. And he's just got on there. I beat Mark Lanier one time 11 years ago. And I'm, I'm like, oh, gee, really? So he gets in to try another case against me, and he's hired by the company because he's, quote, the Mark Lanier killer. And um, uh, we go in and we try the case. 
And the jury returns a verdict of $4.69 billion. One of the reporters who wrote up the trial said to me afterwards, they said, uh, yeah, the defense lawyer was saying that that uh, he's beaten you before, and so now y'all are one in one. And I, I kind of laughed and I said, yeah, I guess that's one way to see it. I just see it differently. And she said, how do you see it? I said, I see it every time I try a case against him. I went on average $2.3 billion and, uh, uh, and, and laughed about it. But, you know, anybody who's going to hold themselves out as I'm the Mark Lanier killer, that's not the focus. That's not what it should be. And, and so I count that as a good thing for me. That helps me. In episode 25, I sat down with Kim Scott, New York Times bestselling author of Radical Candor. Candidly, I was a bit starstruck. Kim's book deeply resonated with me when I read it many years ago and has become a staple in our organization. During our conversation, Kim shared the right way and the wrong way to give feedback, why the most effective leaders care personally and challenge directly, and the single most impactful piece of criticism she's ever received from Sheryl Sandberg. So I had just started working at Google and uh, and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about how the AdSense business was doing. And I walked into the room and there in one corner of the room was Sergey Brin, one of the founders in a bright blue spandex unitard wearing toe shoes, standing on an elliptical trainer, <clears throat> you know, kind of pedaling away, stepping away at not what I was expecting. And there in the other corner of the room was Eric Schmidt, who was CEO at the time, doing his email. And he was so intent on his computer. It was like his brain had been plugged into the machine. And I think probably like you would have felt, I felt a little bit nervous uh, in in the moment. How in the world was I supposed to get these people's attention? Luckily for me, the business, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added over the last couple of months, Eric almost fell off his chair. What did you say? This is incredible. Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineers? So I'm feeling like the meetings are going okay. In fact, I now believe that I am a genius. And as I walked out of the room, I walked past Cheryl, my boss, Cheryl Sandberg, and I'm expecting sort of a high five or a pat on the back. And instead, Cheryl says to me, you said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And at that point, I sort of breathed a huge sigh of relief because if that was all I had done, who really cared? And I sort of made this brush off gesture with my hand. And I said, yeah, I know it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. And then she said, I know this great speech coach. I'm sure Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I made this brush off gesture with my hand. I said, no, I don't have time for a speech coach. Didn't you hear about all those new customers? I'm busy. And then she stopped. We're walking back to her office. She stopped. She looked right at me and she said, when you say, um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now she's got my full attention. And some people might say it was mean of Cheryl to say I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career, because if she hadn't told me that I would never have gone to see the speech coach. And I wouldn't have learned that Cheryl was not exaggerating. I literally said, um, every third word. And this was news to me because I had been giving presentations my whole career. I had raised millions of dollars for two startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And this really got me to thinking two things, really. One, 
What was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me? But also, why had no one else told me? I, it was almost like I'd been walking through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth, and no one told me it was there. And that was when I really realized that the two elements of, of Cheryl's management style that were so effective were this sort of care personally business. I knew Cheryl had my back. Uh, Cheryl had done a million things to show me that. When I first moved from New York to California to take the job, I was a little bit lonely. Cheryl could tell I was lonely. And she introduced me to a book club that I'm still part of to this day. So when I had a family member fall ill, Cheryl said, I'm going to write your coverage plan. Your team has got your back. That's what teams do for each other. And that was the kind of thing that Cheryl did. She couldn't do it for all 5,000 people in her organization, of course. But if you worked directly with Cheryl, you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that she had your back. And so it was easy for me to know that she was telling me this, not to kick me in the shins or something, but because she had my back. Uh, at the same time, even though Cheryl was concerned about people's short-term feelings, it's not like she was a jerk or anything, she never let that concern get in the way of her willingness to tell us things that we needed to know for our own success and for the success of the team. And so that was the challenge directly part. You know, so there's this this is always this quote that I always like from Ed Catmull, who's the president of Pixar, and he said, like, you don't want to be where there's more candor in the hallways than in the rooms where ideas or policy are being hashed out. And and it seems like radical candor really kind of gets to the root of things rather than having the meeting after the meeting or when people go on walks and, and things like that. Yeah, it is so inefficient, the meeting. It's it's both inefficient, ineffective, and unjust, the meeting after the meeting. There's a great Medium article that was just published by Francoise Brower, who was the COO at Pinterest, which had a culture that was rife with the meeting after the meeting. It, it really speaks to why, if you can create a culture where people say what they really think in a way that is not obnoxious, but that shows that they're respecting their colleagues in the meeting, then you can have three times less meetings and you can also be more innovative. People cannot be innovative if they are unable to say what they really think. And they also can't build good relationships if they can't disagree with one another in a way that is respectful. So it being a fan of leading by example, and we want to kind of instill radical candor within our organizations and, you know, in doing so not just with our leadership team, but actually every team member of kind of behaving in that manner of, of being radically candid with, with, you know, each other is the best way to do it just simply by being the example for it. Or are there other ways to kind of uh, implement it into an organization? The single best thing you can do to implement radical candor are impromptu two minute conversations. So just like Cheryl did for me when she saw me say um too much, we didn't schedule a follow-up meeting. You know, I was walking to her next meeting with her. She just fitted in to the things she was already doing. So these impromptu two-minute conversations. And by the way, it's not all about giving criticism. You also want to solicit. There's an order of operations. So after a meeting, you want to ask somebody on your team to critique you. You also want to give praise, and that you can do publicly, right in the meeting, in front of everyone. And then you also want to offer criticism, and, and you want to gauge how it's landing. So that's kind of the upper order of operations. And these are things you do impromptu in the minute, 
in the moment throughout your day. A little bit harder now that we're not physically co-located, but you can call someone right after a meeting, try to schedule a little slack time in between your, your Zooms all day long. So that's the best way to do it is discipline. The, hard, the bad news about radical candor is it takes emotional discipline. You'd rather do almost anything else in those two minutes in between meetings than call the person and have this quick conversation. But if you put it into practice, it's really, it's like brushing and flossing. It's not like a root canal. Uh, it's something you just get in the habit of doing and you feel kind of bad when you don't do it once you get it. But the hard thing, of course, is getting in the habit. So what are some things you can do to build this habit for yourself, but for your whole organization? One of the things that I recommend is saving maybe five minutes at the end of your one-on-one with people who work for you and ask them at the end of the one-on-one to give you feedback. And don't just say, do you have any feedback for me? Because if you do that, I can already tell you what the answer is. Oh, no, everything's fine. So you want to figure out how you're going to ask it. And you need to ask it in a way that feels authentic. One of the questions that that one of my coaches recommended, which I like, is what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? However, I was working with another coach, Krista Quarles, when she was CEO of OpenTable, and she said, I could never imagine those words coming out of my mouth. She said, the question I like to ask is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. That's fine too. Like ask it, uh, just make sure the person doesn't, isn't struggling with the drug habit, but ask it in a way that feels authentic to you and in a way that works for the other person. So I started this company with Jason Rosoff that does coaching and workshops and keynotes about radical candor. And after we'd been working together for about a month, Jason said to me, I hate your question. I hate it when you ask me that, that what could I do or stop doing? He said, it's too open-ended, it's too vague. So I try to ask him more specifically. So it's got to feel authentic to you and it's got to work for the other person. So if our listeners today do only one thing as a result of this podcast, and it is to solicit feedback at the end of their one-on-ones, time well spent. There's a lot more in the book about 360s and all that business. But if you just solicit feedback at the end of your one-on-ones, you're already doing the right thing. In episode 31 of this podcast, I sat down with Grant Cardone, best-selling author, renowned speaker, entrepreneur, international social media influencer, and real estate mogul. I remember the first time I ran into Grant many years ago. It was in the middle of the night at the Las Vegas International Airport, and Grant and his team, they were going through security, and he got held up because of questions regarding tens of thousands of dollars in cash in his carry-on bag. Needless to say, it was simply another day in the life of Grant Cardone. During our podcast, Grant explained his unique approach to investing, why we should always go bigger, and the mindsets he's instilled to battle complacency. You know, I've been asked this a lot. I think it's like a lot. There's a lot. There's not a moment. There wasn't, there wasn't a thing. For a fire to burn, everybody's like, who started the fire? Dude, somebody, who kept it going? You know, I think the better question is, how do you keep the fire burning? Because everybody's got the spark. Everybody's got the spark. It's like, how'd you put it out? How'd you put it out? Who put it out? How do you find it again? And then once you get it again, dude, how do you add wood to it? I talked about this in a book that I wrote called If You're Not First, You're Last. Build a fire so hot, so big, so enormous that people from all over the world, regardless of who you are, your religion, your race, your age, your sex, they're like, I got to go sit by that damn fire. And like you could see it from miles away. 
the fact that you say I'm a catalyst to other people, that that's so, that is such a store of wealth for me. It's like you just filled up this big silo of what should be wheat in it uh, with purpose because that, that is the ultimate wealth. The ultimate wealth is I helped other people. You know, another, another huge silo of wealth is my personal confidence that I can do the idea that I can do almost anything and not saying I can do anything. I can't do anything, but, but, but if I don't quit, dude, I could probably figure it out, you know, and, and I have confidence in myself not to quit today. So, and I think the catalyst that I become for other people today is not the jet and it's not the, the money, the ultimate. I mean, I think some of that turns a lot of people on and off. I think the real one, the one that really like, that inspires my peers is dude. your energy, bro, is like, you just always relight. When I thought you were bright, you get it brighter. When I thought you were big, you make it bigger. And, and I don't do that for people. I'm not trying to please other people. I'm trying to please me. And if there's been a catalyst, if there's been a pivot point, a hinge, you know, it's that one right there. Hey, Grant, don't worry about pleasing other people. You just please Grant. I was on the phone with some lawyers yesterday and they said, hey, on this thing, you need to have no comment. I'm like, hey, that's stupid. dude. No comment is a comment. Like the ability to have common sense and to be yourself despite injury. Grant, if you comment on this, it's going to be used against you later. I'm like, bro, no comment is a comment. And they're like, huh? No, no comment can't get you in trouble. Uh, no comment is a comment to the public. And I am more interested in the public's, the public's understanding and my, how I feel about me at night than I am about uh, what a couple of rat bastard lawyers think or say in a courthouse when all they're in it for is the fee anyway. They're not in it for right or wrong. They're in it for just get their little fee and get out. And I'm in it for, I need to feel good about me. Not, you don't need to feel good about me. And, and that is a, um, if people can develop that ability, you know, to look in the mirror and be so disgusted in yourself that you're not trying, I'm not buying watches. Like what watch are you going to like to see me in? I'm like, dude, what watch do I want to see me in? You know, what plane do I want to get on? It doesn't matter to me if other people like it. And what book do I need to write for me? Yeah. So, so anyway, a uh, long answer on that, that's some of the stuff that just keeps me really excited. Ba- ba- battles, battles are huge catalysts for me, by the way. People, people that count me out or dog on me online, they're like, it jacks me up so hard. I mean, I cannot tell you how much fuel I get from the haters and the naysayers. Yeah, Grant, I think many see you oftentimes as almost like a contrarian. You know, it, it is, there's what is commonly believed. And then oftentimes you say it almost in the complete opposite way. Like cash is king. Nope. Cash flow is king. And it's about so many different concepts. It's almost as if like you dissect things that you see in the world and then you look at it and say, well, that tra- traditional model doesn't really work. Right. So I, I'm just curious as to how you go about that process. Yeah. So, you're, you know, you're very observant, by the way. You do you do a great podcast. It, I, I know how hard it is to do these interviews, dude. You make it look so easy. Like. It's amazing. Like, I wish I could do what you do. Hardest thing for me to do in the world is to do an interview like this, to, to do to do your part. Me answering questions is easy. It's when I start asking people questions. So I am a student of observation. When something doesn't work for me, I'm like, okay, well, maybe I did it wrong. Then I do it again. It goes wrong again. Then I'm like, okay, maybe something happened here. 
and I'm always going to be the responsible one. I did it wrong. I did it wrong. I did it wrong. And then, and I'm like, shit, if I never get this right, something's wrong with the formula. Cause I ain't stupid. I can't always be the problem. I'm willing to be responsible, but maybe I got a wrong piece of data. Uh, saving money is one of them. Dude, saving money is stupid. It is ridiculous. The only thing that ever happens to people that save money is they end up losing it. It ends up getting lost. It ends up getting stolen. It ends up getting burnt or it ends up going down in value. But it's never going to get bigger. You save money at the bank. It ain't getting bigger, period. Who does that benefit? We've all been told, save your money, save your money, save your money. Who does that really benefit? I remember I read the, the Blackjack book, How to Play Blackjack, right? I knew that book. I knew every card to hit. And then I realized everybody at the table had read the same damn book. Everybody's staying on 16s. Then this Chinese dude comes in, and this freaking guy's banging 16s against nines, like, like, or 16s against sevens, sixes and fives and fours. Everything he shouldn't do, he's doing. He's splitting tens, and he's making all the money. He was the only one not playing by the book. And, and so I just think that there's – Everybody should buy a house. Maybe not. Maybe not. Okay, because the wealthy guys never talk about the house they bought. Warren Buffett owns one house. So I got a lot of those little things that I have just observed in my own life. They're just not true, man, period. Like, and anybody can fight me on it as much as they want. You're never going to get rich buying a house. Never. It's never going to happen. It's never happened on the planet. You're never going to get you're never going to get successful on your own. You're not going alone. Jesus didn't go alone. Alexander the Great didn't go alone. Martin Luther King had a team. You're not going any place by yourself. So all this I'm going to go smaller, smaller is better. Smaller ain't bigger. By the way, go big or go bigger. Bigger. Don't go home, don't go home. How many of us say that? Oh, go home. Now what the fuck away you want to go home? Ain't nothing at home. There's nothing in your closet. What, are you going to come out? <laughs> yeah, dude, so people need to observe. They need to study the people that are winning and watch what they do, not what they say. In episode 41, I sat down with Dave Asprey, founder and chairman of Bulletproof and the father of biohacking. So interesting bit about this episode. You see, at the start of each podcast, there's a big red button we have to hit that says record, okay? But 30 minutes into this interview, I realized that I somehow forgot to hit it and that we'd have to start the entire interview over again. Now, in the moment, I thought Dave was going to kill me, but instead he laughed it off and said, well, shit happens. So during our conversation, Dave shared the origin story behind Bulletproof's growth, his take on the evolution of health and biology, and while he wholeheartedly believes that he'll live to the age of 180. My first blog was called The Bulletproof Executive because no one ever wrote for business people. And it was almost like, oh, well, let's just assume business people want to all be like weekend warriors or something. And I don't know about everyone listening to this. You know, some people are runners or cyclists and good for you. That's great. For me, I just want my brain to work all the time. And I'd like to be really healthy and full of energy, right? And whether I have ripped abs or not, look, I'm married. I have two kids. My wife will love me whether I have a dad bod or not. If I have more energy and more brain, I'll have a dad bod. Fortunately, abs are kind of a side effect of doing things right. I also don't want to waste a minute. I don't want to exercise eight hours a week if I can get the same results or better in two hours a week, which you can do. <laughs> so like, how do I get my time back and how do I get more energy? 
And every single thing you do, everything you put on your plate, the way you go to bed, the way you exercise, what you do, there's an ROI. It's not an ROI that's based on money. You invest energy into something and you get energy back. Because if you have enough energy, you can better leverage your time and you can make more money. But if you're out of energy and you have time, all you're gonna do is sleep. <laughs> and if you're out of energy and you have abundant time, you're not going to be able to make more money with that time because you're too damn tired and you're unfocused. What I found was that in business, especially at the upper echelon where I operated in Silicon Valley and in the places where Bulletproof caught on first, it went from Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, developers, people were mental, to Wall Street. And from there, it went to Hollywood. Because if you're going to be an actor or an actress or a big musician, you've got to be able to bring that energy. And you've got to look a certain way, and you've got to be able to act a certain way and have your brain work all the time. These are the hardest things to do. And it's the same thing. Look, if you need to absorb a bunch of briefs, you have to read a bunch of things, some of which you probably don't care that much about. You have to be able to formulate the picture in your head that lets you stand there in court and recall what you need to do and have a picture of it and do strategy in real time while maintaining the right appearance, right? Well, not looking lost and not having a brain fart in the middle of looking in front of a judge or making an important argument or when you want to write something at two in the morning because it has to happen. Those are the state of being bulletproof that I created this whole thing for. So the side effect of having tons of biological energy is that your brain is capable of that stuff. If I can do that with my incredibly bad start, I think most people can do it. In fact, most people in about two weeks of going bulletproof, like, I can't believe my brain can do this. And for an intellectually demanding job like being an attorney, there is no better program because it was designed for people like us. I know this, there was a time you stated that you want to live to be 180 years old. And I'm, I'm sure people hearing this, that maybe there's going to be an eyebrow raise or two, but how did you come to that number? And this is always very fascinating to me because we do have the ability to live longer and we're seeing a lot of just great science coming out and so on that's extending lifespans and so on. But how did you, how did you come to 180? Well, I want to be really clear. It's at least 180 because I think that's a conservative number. And now people are saying, Dave, that's such BS, but l l let me walk you through the logic. There are five people today who are 120 years old, well-documented with, that's not a lot of people. Okay, 120 years ago, it was 1900. There's no airplanes, there's no cars. We were gonna fight World War I, still on horseback for a lot of it, okay? That's what the world looked like back then. We didn't understand bacteria. We didn't have antibiotics. We couldn't spell DNA because we hadn't invented it. It was a different world and they're still around. Look at what's happened in that one lifetime. Now, if the best we can do today is 120, if we can't do 50% better than our best in the next 100 freaking years, it's because a comet hit the planet. Now, as a part of becoming a expert level biohacker, for more than a decade, I ran an anti-aging nonprofit group where we'd bring experts in and interview them in front of a, a group of about 100 people in Palo Alto, California. And we would talk about this. And I met people when I was in my 20s who were in their 80s who had more energy than I did. And they were full of life and full of energy. I'm like, I want that because I didn't have it when I was young. And I got that. And so I've seen it happen. And I've become friends with the top researchers. I've interviewed 850 of them on Bulletproof Radio. 850 people, not all of them are anti-aging doctors, but people doing the clinical research. And for the first time ever, 
you can have someone with tenure at a major academic institution stand up and say, we can reverse biological aging in cells. If you just said that 10 years ago, they'd have taken your tenure and laughed you out of there. They would have blackballed you. And it's because they've been working on it for 20 and 30 years. And we are right now at the point where we understand more about our biology than any time in human history. And it is becoming possible. And right now, yes, I wrote a whole book about that. And I've done all the treatments that the billionaires do. And I wrote about what it's like. But it's going to become like cell phones were. If you're an older attorney listening to this, you remember the early 90s. And that was when the first mobile phones became available. Maybe it was the late 80s. And you'd see you know, people in their Mercedes convertible 300D. And the whole trunk is a cell phone. And it costs 50 grand for the phone. And it's $25 a minute. And they're driving down the road. And everyone's like, look at that jerk. Who does he think he is, right? Well, you can buy a smartphone in Africa for a dollar a month today in our lifetime. That's how fast things change. We're in an era of exponential change. So, of course, we're going to live to at least 180 if a piano doesn't hit you and if you can afford it. But the costs will drop dramatically. If you want to do that, you have to make it to the point when all of these advances come out and are available. You must start intermittent fasting. It is easier than having breakfast, but the anti-aging benefits of it are so strong and the cognitive benefits of it are so strong and just feeling good all the time benefits are so strong. You do it now. It's going to add years to your life. And if you did no other interventions, it just means that the last 10 or 20 years of your life, you won't be wearing diapers. You won't have hoses where you don't want them and you'll remember your own name. That's how important intermittent fasting is. That's why I wrote a book about it. I only write about books that are worth people's time to read. And this is based on 10 years of doing it and 10 years of helping people lose a million pounds on the Bulletproof diet, which has always included intermittent fasting. And this idea that, oh, you have to do it and you have to live your life and be a successful, busy executive at the same time, that's missing from a lot of the health stuff. Like, oh, we tested mice. We tested patients who weren't doing anything. Well, no, the people listen to this podcast, they have stuff to do. So how do you do the fasting thing? How do you do the other things that make you younger and stronger and faster and smarter and still do what you're here to do? That's the challenge. And that's why it's different than, you know, human performance optimization. Screw optimization. I just want more. I want better. I want faster, stronger, longer lived, more energy. And I don't want to give anything up to do it. And if it, to optimize, I have to say, oh, I just gave up, you know, dinner with friends every night because I had to go to the gym for two hours or whatever kind of stuff. That's an optimization. No, I don't want to do that. I simply want better. In episode 47 of this podcast, I sat down with Jessica Mogul, seasoned business leader, head of coaching strategy at Crisp, and yes, she also happens to be my wife and the mother of our two amazing girls. Jessica is someone who prefers to be behind the scenes at Crisp, so it took nearly a year of me convincing her to come on this podcast, but I think you'll agree it was worth the wait. So whatever is established at your company, your firm, you've established that. If you are the CEO, if you are the owner, you have endorse that. You know, the other day I heard a great quote, you endorse what you tolerate. And if somebody is consistently late and you're like, oh, it's okay, it's okay, you're endorsing that. And the rest of the team sees that. And the biggest thing, you know, I really always focus on culture, people, processes, but your A players do not want to be around mediocre people. They just don't. It actually will deter them and push them away. I find that ego plays a large role in driving any type of organizational change because there was a time where I felt that the things that I wasn't good at, it was important for me to get good at them. I mean, there's, there's business fundamentals, I think, across the board. Like, you know, if you're going to grow any organization to any level of scale, you will need 
organizational processes, SOPs, KPIs, all these different things that are necessary for a business to grow and scale. Yet, if that's not something that is your strength, rather than focusing on how do I develop this weakness, lean into the things that you love and are your strengths and instead find people like yourself. Yeah. And I think it's also people, you know, when I say people like myself, I'm a very, very structured person. Michael's not kidding. It took a very long time to get me on this podcast. Uh, So anything that's kind of outside of my norm, I uh, really have to think about that. I have to process that. And what's interesting, though, is in this position, you have to be okay being uncomfortable. So especially you're working with a visionary CEO, you can't be entirely stuck in your ways. I actually remember When I say there were no processes, Michael at this time was making every single sale and uh, 1-800 number rings. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you do? Like, how do we replicate this? And we didn't have an answer. So I made a process and then I hand Michael this beautifully packaged up process. And I said, okay, great. So here's your process. You can do something and we, we can test it or something. And he goes, great. Uh, you're going to shift the 1-800 number to you and you're going to test the sales process. And I said, great. So that's how I learned to do sales at Crisp was because I was pushed outside of my comfort zone. But I think that's really important because you can't really grow within the company without pushing yourself to those limits. Yeah, I I remember even the time where not only do we not have a hiring process, which I mean, now it's amazing. We teach on the hiring process that we have now. Um, we didn't have a formal onboarding or training and development process or even curriculum, any of those things. And I was getting frustrated. I'm like, why are these people not working out? And I mean, it's hundred percent my fault because number one, we weren't vetting them properly on the front end because there was no hiring process. And then once they were hired, how are we training and developing them to be successful in their role? And there was no training and development structure. It's, it's kind of ironic in the sense that everything we do now on the coaching side of the business and we work with law firms is based on all the lessons that we've learned. But what's so fascinating to me looking back is that I love business. I'm, I'm obsessed with it in the sense that I was reading the business books. I was going to the business conferences. I knew the importance of having these processes or these KPIs or formal onboarding or training development. Like I knew these things, you didn't have to convince me of them. And yet, despite reading all those books, you never truly understand that the most important thing instead could be from a leverage standpoint, how does this actually get done? We talk to law firms about this all the time. When we ask them like, how many of you know, you know, if you need systems and processes in your organization, every hand goes up. And then you ask, well, how many of you actually have clearly defined every single process in your organization? And like one, two hands go up and then half of them are, you know, are being dishonest. And at some point learning more about what the process to create isn't going to help you create the process. And the reality is you're never going to do it. You know, never, ever, ever, ever going to do it, prove me wrong. But instead, the shortcut is find somebody who loves processes and is operationally minded. And just, I'm sure there's gonna be people listening to this that are wondering, okay, I've heard enough. Where do I find me, Jessica? That's a great question. I've actually become, I think, uh, what is that, a noun now, a Jessica, finding a Jessica. So again, I never planned to be here as long as I am. And honestly, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. But it's interesting when you say that about asking firm owners. I was talking to a client this morning and he has a workshop coming up. And I said, great, have you blocked out your day that you get back to sit down with your right hand and go through everything? And he's like, oh, 
let me do that right now. Cause he knows, he knows he will go back and nothing will get done without this person who is going to actually execute. And so there will be an interesting transition in this conversation because we're also married. And so how do you find a Jessica? Oh, this could go on forever. (laughs) So the interesting thing is, is of course, we trust each other immensely. Uh, So there's that side of things. And then you really have to find someone though. Again, like I said, they have to be okay being number two, being behind the scenes, being the operational person. And honestly, someone who is okay challenging you I think that is a big thing that we've seen with a lot of people who come in from a leadership perspective is having that confidence to challenge you and that person, any visionary, because it's very easy for a visionary to say, oh, I've got all these ideas, let's run with them. And so I would say one of my biggest strengths, though, is actually being able to poke holes in things. And so being able to say, no, this is not good. Or what if this happens? And I know all you visionaries are probably thinking, no, those people are going to slow me down. Those people are going to be so defensive and they're going to, you know, not want to make any progress. And it is not defensiveness. I just look at every scenario that could go wrong before we implement. I'm not saying don't do it. I just want to have every potential, you know, cage (laughs) barrier everywhere to protect it. You know, I will say this to our credit, I believe we've done a very good job of this over the years in the sense that at the office, unless you were explicitly told and I mean, you learn that we are married, many times I think you can go weeks or months without knowing that, you know, we're even together. And I think that stems from the fact that at the business it's and in the office, it's business. 100%. You are harder on me than any person here. And I think that it should be that way. I don't want special treatment. I don't think that I deserve special treatment. Uh, it is funny that you say that, especially when we were a lot smaller, also before I was a mogul, it was not so obvious, of course, that we were together. But a team back when there were probably 10, 15 people, they actually filmed a video while Michael and I were on vacation and interviewed each person and asked how they found out <laughs> that we were actually together. It was hilarious, the stories, though. I mean, people literally had no idea for months that we were together because that separation and that professionalism has to be there. That's something I've always been very wary about, too, having trained so many offices. If the significant other was you know, involved in the practice— I've seen it go both ways, and I have always made a very conscious effort to not just be, you know, oh, well, that's Michael's wife, and, you know, she gets her way or anything. No, you're harder on me than any person here. So I've seen this when people have, let's say they're in the business with their spouse, I've seen it have disastrous effects, like disastrous. I've seen relationships not only deteriorate, but end over it. It's not even just them, let's say, working together. Sometimes it's just you have the person, let's say, the CEO of the firm, and then you've got the husband or wife that's at home. Let's say there's a different career path, but it's like them not knowing what they signed up for when you're in a relationship like that. And I've seen people try to make it work because you know they'll hear about, well, let me bring my, my husband into the business, let me bring my wife into the business. I would say that, you know, from the onset, I think look back even to the first date, because I remember we had this conversation. It was having complete clarity of like who I am and what you're signing up for and saying, hey, this is the out. Because the worst thing is to, you know, to figure this out years later once you're married and have kids. Oh, yeah. So I will say that is something from the very beginning. There are even times now when you spit out some crazy idea and you're like, 
are you you cool with this? And literally my answer every time is, I know what I signed up for. So I I know exactly how ambitious it's going to be, how crazy it's going to be. But that alignment from the very beginning could not be more important. And it's interesting, too, when you say that about, you know, someone who maybe has a stay-at-home spouse because that also can be very challenging. And that was one thing with us working together is, like, We've never questioned late nights. We've never questioned how long, you know, someone's going to be there. And and it doesn't just work on one way. I mean, there are nights where you've gone home and I'm still at the office, but we've we've never like challenged that or been like, where are you? Or, you know, we're, we're in it together and we know where we're going. In episode 53, I sat down with Ryan Holiday, media strategist, thought leader, and best-selling author. You know, this conversation was recorded in March of 2021, one year into the COVID pandemic, but Ryan's message is relevant both then and now. We discussed timeless stoic philosophies, how our perceptions impact our actions, and why sometimes the obstacle is the way. So the discipline of perception is, is the first discipline because how we see things determines what they are. And, and, and there's probably no one more well-suited to this than a lawyer. The, you know, the ability to split hairs, to really examine things, to see it from different angles is really important. You know, the, the Stoics would agree with that line from Shakespeare that nothing, neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. The story we tell ourselves about things, the way we interpret a thing is really important. I guess the Stoics would say life is objective. It just is events just are. And then we decide like, oh, that was bad. That harmed me. That hurt me. Or we decide, oh, this is a great stroke of good luck. Or, you know, this is exactly what I want to happen. The Stoics kind of try to step back and see things objectively. Epictetus says it's not things that upset us. It's our judgment about things, right? So even you look at the last year, did you get screwed? Was it horrible? Was it the worst thing that could have happened? That's one story you could tell yourself about it. The other story you could tell yourself about it is that it was a a giant forced lifestyle experiment, that it was a test or a challenge, that it was, you know, an opportunity to do things differently, that it was a time to spend more time with your family. Like you decide what you're going to do with it. Again, what it is, we don't control largely, but we do control what we're going to do about it. And that starts with how we decide to see it. And I love in the book you talk about like recognizing your power because it really brings the question about of like how can someone feel empowered and really recognize their power when they can feel that there's so many aspects of this that are outside of their control or you know, aspects in their environment and so on. I remember you tell the story of like of Hurricane Carter, like the boxer. So if, if you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, he's a boxer. He's wrongly accused. He's sent to prison. Objectively, this is a grave injustice. This shouldn't have happened. But what he decides as an individual in that prison is to use that time productively, to not be broken by it, to not become resentful and bitter because of it, but to fight for his freedom and to never relinquish the one power we always have, which is to decide the meaning that we're going to take from something. And so that's that's really, really essential. And I think some of us are primed to tell different stories at different moments. Like, you know, a hedge fund knows that their job is to make money, whether the market goes up or down. That's what they do. And I think there, there's something about your profession. There's something about my profession that that has a similar amount of adaptability to it. I remember a mentor of mine told me, he said, Ryan, like, you have to remember is that as a writer, the good thing is it's all material. You know, somebody screws you over, you get dumped, you mess up, you know, you lose someone you love. It doesn't matter what it is, it's material you can use. And so the decision to go, hey, this is material, 
allows me to go through the world a little bit less sensitive to whether things are happening exactly the way that I want them to be, because I know that as heartbreaking as this moment is, as undesirable as this moment is, there's some good use I'll be able to put it to. And I think as a lawyer, as an entrepreneur, it's the same thing. It's like, hey, this is teaching me something. I'm learning because of this. I, I say this lots of times when I'll talk to like an insurance company or something and be like, look, if everything went the way that everyone wanted it to be, you would not be in business. If the law was clear and straightforward and obvious, if running a law firm was easy, none of the people on this call would have a job. And even within that, there wouldn't be much value to be created. There wouldn't be the opportunity to be you know, more successful at it than someone else. So the fact that it's hard, the fact that it's difficult, the Stokes would sort of grant all that and go, yes, but this is also working with me as much as it's working against me. And when talking about any any type of adversity, it's always interesting to see like how adversity impacts us, right? So you mentioned it can harden you or it can loosen you up and make you better, but how do you essentially respond to it in the right way to basically get the benefit of that adversity? Yeah, I mean, there's some people who stuff happens, makes them more selfish, more disagreeable, more angry, more insular. And then there's other people who, you know, the events of the last year, let's say, opened them up. It made them a better boss, made them a better spouse. It made them a better friend. It made them a better member of their community, right? So you can sort of look at these things that happen as an unfair thing that happened to you or as an opportunity. The Stoics have this idea of a more fati, a love of fate. Marcus says, you know, we turn a fire, he says, turns whatever happens to it into fuel, into flame and brightness. And I think the ability to say, hey, the events of the last year completely kicked my ass. It destroyed my business. It, it took this person I love from me, whatever that happens to be, and then go, okay, and so now here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm not going to let this break me. Here's how I'm going to become better for what has happened. Yeah. And as we get into the latter part of the book, you talk about will. And you mentioned that this is the most difficult of all the disciplines. And I love to just hear not just why, but also how do, how do you define will? Yeah. I mean, this is what we're talking about. The, the will is harder because it's just about putting up with stuff, right? It's just about enduring. It's just about hanging on. And it's about that, you know, really difficult thing of acceptance. I sort of define will as that sort of inner kind of soul power that we have that allows us to, this thing was supposed to take two weeks and here we are 12 months later. How are you doing? You know, willpower is a, is the swing vote there. Yeah. And you talk about this concept of like building your inner citadel. That you could give like a, an example of like Theodore Roosevelt. But what, what do you mean by this? And like, what is, uh, you know, our inner citadel? Well, how do you cultivate, uh, someone said of George Washington that he had kind of a cabinet of fortitude, which is another metaphor of like, hey, look, when shit gets tough, this is where I reach into. This is my reserves that I draw on. So maybe that's physical, like as a person who, who likes endurance sports, you know, it's when I'm 90% of the way through a manuscript and I, I hate it and I want to quit and I'm not sure it's going to work and I've already been on this for a year, I think about, hey, this is like when I'm 23 miles into a run. This is what you feel like when that hill just won't quit and you got to decide, are you going to quit or are you going to get to the top? So what are you drawing on? What are your reserves? What's that sort of real inner strength and character that you have 
I mean, anyone can be good when things are good. But can you keep going when things are not good? This is what we have to cultivate willpower for. So what is that X factor, right? Because it seems like we don't come out of the womb resilient, right? That, like, that's something that's almost like a muscle, right? Our mind, our brain is kind of built through consistent you know, endurance, if you will. But you know, for someone that says, Ryan, I hear what you're saying, but when I'm running, I want to stop after mile three and I stop after mile three. So that would be a great opportunity to develop that muscle. Like, hey, I want to quit, but I don't. Can you have that conversation with yourself? Seneca, one of the other Stoics, he talks about how He's like, I pity the person who has never been through something because they don't know what they're capable of. And so I would say, look, you survived one of the most significant, difficult, unpredictable and intimidating natural disasters and public health crises of the last 50 or 70 years. Right. Like you lived through a profound historical moment and some of us did better than others. But but if you're hearing my voice, you survived right? You got through this with some semblance of your, of your act together. You're here. That should give you some real confidence, right? Not everyone was able to do that. And maybe you five years ago would not have been able to do that. But here we are. And so the ability to think about what have I got through in the past? I, I, again, like, okay, let's say you're going through a divorce, um, and you're heartbroken. I'm never going to find anyone again. This is so awful. I, I can't believe they cheated on me. But how do you feel in retrospect? How do you feel about all the other breakups in your life? Right. You know that you got through them and you know that they were formative in you becoming the person that you are now. Now, that doesn't magically make it wonderful that your heart was broken uh, and that you're now alone. But it does give you a sense that you have what it takes to get through this. In episode 71, I sat down with Tim Grover, performance coach to some of the most elite athletes on the planet, including Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. Tim stopped by to record this podcast in our studio and then returned to Atlanta to take the stage at the Game Changers Summit this past November. In this episode, Tim discusses why balance is earned, the sacrifices required to win at the highest level, and the dark side of winning. I asked all my clients, I was like, I do this currently now with any business individual, anybody I work with, still pro athlete. I said, you know, define winning in one word. And you get a lot of individuals that, you know, they'll say, oh, it's joyous, it's euphoric, it's attitude, it's whatever it may, whatever, whatever positive thing they can come up with. And then you ask like the the people that have like really, really competed and lost and have gotten that close to a win and lost it, and but then finally got that win over and over again. And they, their language is completely different. They sit down and they they think for a quick second and the answers they come up with is like, it's hard, it's nasty, it's uncivilized, it's unapologetic, you know, it's uninhibited. It, it's those things because what they're thinking about is the time that they spent to get to that win and what it takes to do it all over again. You know, once you get that win, you get to a certain level in a bank account, you get a certain level in your business, or you win certain championship rings, you know, to repeat again, yeah, it is gonna be harder. It is gonna be more nastier. It is gonna be dirtier. It is gonna be more unpolished. It is gonna be uncivilized. It's gonna be all those things. And people, all those words in the language of winning now aren't, aren't accepted. But, you know, as a society and as, a, as people that want to win, 
you really have to think about what you're willing to really get dirty with, what you're really willing, are you willing to put yourself in a uncivilized frame of mind where you're controlling everything that you possibly can control because if you can do that, then the uncontrollable becomes a little easier to manage. Everybody wants to be civilized. They want everything controlled for them. It's not going to happen. It's just not. In his book, Tim discusses the dark side of winning, the unpopular decisions you have to make and the sacrifices necessary to win at the highest level. I asked Tim to elaborate on this. Like I said, I talk about and say things that other people won't. There's not an individual I know that doesn't have either a habit or an individual in their life that they need to get rid of. There's not one person. You're holding on to something. You're either holding on to an addiction that's holding you back or you're holding on to a habit that you refuse to let go. There's an individual that's very close to you. It could be it could be a family member. It could be in a relationship. It could be one of your closest friends. And you need, you should have made that decision a long time ago, but that's when your feelings are stronger than your mind. Your mind has to be stronger than the feelings because that's what the dark side requires you to do. That's what, that's what winning requires. It requires you to make decisions, not suggestions. And when you make decisions, you have to answer the hard questions. These days, people aren't willing to make decisions. They want others to make decisions for them because when others make decisions for you, you always have an out. You can blame you can blame that person. You can blame that individual. You can blame whatever happens. This lifestyle, it, it's not for everyone. It's extremely intense. It's extremely intense. If you're looking for balance, this this is not balance all around balance, year-round, every day. This is not the way to do it. But I'm telling you. This is what the most successful individuals in any forms of life, they all go through this, not just once, numerous, numerous times. It's not pretty. It's not nice to talk about. It is controversial, but I'm telling you the truth. There's not a single individual. You know what? It's funny. They'll tell you, everyone will talk to you about you need more balance in your life. Well, that's after they've had years and years of unbalance because now it's a good thing for them to talk about that, but they don't want to talk about how many years they were unbalanced to get to what they consider balance is now. It's not a good word to say, oh, you know what? I missed an event. Well, I, you know, <laughs> I forgot about an anniversary. I forgot about a birthday. You know, I, I forgot Sweetest Day. I forgot Valentine's Day. You know, I forgot an anniversary. I, I missed a, a child's event. All right. Those aren't things that people like, like to admit, but we've all done it. We, we've all done it. Balance is earned. It's earned. It's earned the way you want to earn it. It's yours. You don't find balance. You create it. And your definition of balance may be completely different than my, my definition of balance. It's a question you get all the time. Yeah, I need to find more balance in life. I can't tell you that. You need to figure it out. And when you get closer to balance, what happens is when somebody always tells you, they give you the answer of, listen, how do I get more balance? And everybody wants to add stuff. Well, you need to do this. 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 And now you have more things to juggle and you become even more unbalanced. How do you get closer to balance? You got to eliminate the unessentials. What do I said? You know, you got to eliminate, you got to eliminate habits. You got to eliminate mindsets. You got to eliminate thoughts. You got to eliminate relationships. You got to eliminate friends. You got to eliminate the unessentials. 
And it's so much harder for us to delete than it is for uh, for us to add. I'm sure everybody in the hair is probably have over a thousand contacts in their phone. I have 200. When I switched phones, they were like, do you want to just transfer your contacts? I said, no. I said, no. I said, I'm going to individually put the contacts that I need in there. Because I looked up, don't need it, don't need it, don't need it, don't need it, don't need it. All right. Well, we got individuals that can't get rid of stuff in their closet. If you can't get rid of stuff in your closet, how in the hell are you going to be able to delete something out of your life that you know you need to get rid of? And winning, at least to, to those who have won at the highest level, it seems like it has this degree of insatiability where you know some people look at someone like Tom Brady and say, well, the last thing he needs is another Super Bowl ring. I mean, what does he have to prove to anyone? And yet, here he is, again, chasing after another one. If you could describe what that is. He's not trying to prove anything to anybody. He's just trying to prove it to himself. He's not doing this for anybody else. He's doing it for himself. And that's the thing when everybody says, everybody says, you know, I'm trying to prove them wrong. Don't prove them wrong. Prove yourself right. Prove yourself right. With each win, I have individuals that always say, listen, I, how can I get more confident? Win. It's a simple, it's the simplest thing. <laughs> You find individuals, the more they win, the more confident that they are. The more confident that they are. Because winning is the dealer for confidence. It is the dealer for confidence. All right? That's why you see these athletes that have won all the time, these business people that have uh, that have won. I mean, you literally have individuals now. You have three individuals. When I grew up, you know, you used to look at the sky and you need to hold a plane and you'd be like, oh, you're going to... Now you got three three multi-billionaires competing to see who could who could spend more time in space. Those are their wins now. That's what they're going after. Right, they're not in their mind, they're like, okay, yeah, they are competing against those under other individuals, but they're also competing with what what's winning is telling them in their mind. So it for people that always say, man, the last thing he needs is another ring. The last thing they need is another dollar. The last thing they need is another successful. That's, you know, that's always, a, that's not, that's a mindset and that's not the winning mindset. All right. Who are you to say what that person needs? Who are you to say that that's what that person should be doing? Because most of the people that are giving advice aren't doing those things themselves. People have the worst relationships give relationship advice. People that aren't financially successful, they tell you how to spend your money. Everyone all of a sudden is an expert in something that's never wanted anything, and social media has allowed, allowed us to do that. It's allowed us to do that. You know, Mike Tyson said this perfectly. He goes, you know what? He goes, back in the day, if you said something to an individual, you'd be, you know, you'd be worried about getting hit in the jaw. He goes, now having that phone allows you to talk trash, criticize individuals, say things to individuals, and be and be protected. You know what I always say for the individuals that that have anything negative to say about me, put them in the same room as I'm in. Now they're my best friends. You know, the level of courage goes down. Winning requires you to have that level of courage all the time. It allows you to have that level of confidence all the time. It has, you have to have that resiliency no matter no matter what's going what's going to happen. Well, Tom knows he could walk out on top, right? And if he doesn't win, everybody's going to say, oh, he should have he done this. He should have done that. He should have done that. No, 
That's what you wanted to do. That's what he, give him and give those individuals credit for deciding what their winning mindset was and what they wanted to do and not what somebody else wanted them to do. They know exactly who they are, and that's the most important thing in order to win. You have to know exactly who you are, not what somebody else wants you to be. There you have it. Over the past two years, I've been honored to speak with some incredible people, learn from them, and share their stories with the world. While each podcast offers a unique set of insights, I end every conversation with the question, what does being a game changer mean to you? And at the Game Changer Summit this past November, I asked some of the nation's most ambitious and committed law firm owners the same question. And here's what a few of them had to say. Being a game changer means just never being complacent, always figuring out ways to improve and be better and get people around me to do better and do more. Being a game changer means doing things the way they should be done, not the way things have always been done. Using one's time, attention, and skill along their journey to really leave the world a better place than they found it. Making a difference in my community and doing something that no one else can do. Building a foundation, being the backbone for my community, and building a better future for myself, for my family, and my team. Not accepting the status quo, not accepting the answer just because it's always been done that way. Being a game changer means finding the correct road, whatever is correct to you, how to get to whatever your goal might be. A game changer to me is somebody that recognizes their vulnerabilities, their fears, uh, and leans into them. Being a game changer means that you are carving out your own path. You're setting your sights on a unique vision and you are making it happen. What it means to me is that not succumbing to the fear that we may feel whenever we're trying to overcome a challenge and leaning into courage as best as possible so that we can overcome whatever challenge we may face. Being a game changer to me means creating a separate category of experience that doesn't play by the rules. To me, being a game changer means stepping out beyond your comfort zone to try to accomplish something greater than you ever thought you could achieve. Showing up in the world as you uniquely, authentically were meant to be. What being a game changer means to me is embracing the discomfort of growth. In other words, said another way, it's to get comfortable in, in being uncomfortable. It's about putting forth your effort at 100% of the time, fighting for what you believe in, and going the distance, even when it gets scary, even when it gets tough. Breaking the mold and thinking of others before you think of yourself. To me, being a game changer means that you're constantly growing and evolving and trying to make your own path of leading yourself. Having a clear vision of what it is you want in life and never compromising to meet that. It means innovation, adapting, pushing forward, not settling for the status quo, knowing when you can't keep doing the same old, same old all the time, evolving constantly. It's sort of a feeling of no fear, like you are able to just get up every day and handle the challenges. I guess I live in chaos, and uh, being a game changer means that you just are not afraid to embrace, change new ideas, uh, having people tell you something and you take it in, and uh, for sure, that sense that, hey, I could walk out of here with nothing and in a week I'd have everything back, it means that I can do it all. You are in a position to move the legal profession forward. 
And when I say legal profession, it's not just about the business, it's also about the person you are. Changing the game is about both. It's about moving the learned profession forward. I want to give a huge thank you to every single guest who's joined me so far on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. And I want to thank you, yes, you listening right now to this podcast for your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. Oh, 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 oh